Well, hello and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast. My name is Jessica and I'm your host today. And first of all, we are Crossroads Church located an hour north of Denver in northern Colorado. The website is crossroadscolorado.com. And everything I mentioned today will be in the show notes. So when you have a chance, go ahead and grab those links and access the things that I will be referring to today. Now, this week, we are in a series called Believing Like Jesus, and it's week five. If you have missed any of them from before, go back and listen to the first four weeks. They're great. And this week, pastors Katie and Ryan are co-teaching on the topic of love is an orientation. And our anchor verse for the series comes from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. Now, if you're able, go to the show notes and grab your talk notes. Now, if you're running, if you're driving, just take a listen and then you can access them later. I always attach the fill-ins if you want to print it out and take notes. Or there's also a version of all of the notes already filled in. So if you want to pause now and access the show notes, they're there. Otherwise, grab them later. And here's Katie and Ryan. Hey, good morning, Crossroads Wonderfuls. Good to see all of you here in the room. I just thought of that right now. It's so Kind of good. And I want you to welcome uh, Wendy to our platform right here. This is Wendy Hill. Yeah, this is how we clap, right? Uh, Wendy's interpreting for our deaf and hard of hearing community, and she's new to our team, and we're so glad that we have her. My name is Katie. I'm the executive pastor here at Crossroads, and I'm team teaching the topic this morning with Ryan, who is appearing via video here in a few minutes. Um, we are in this series called Believing Like Jesus. Uh, sounds kind of, you know, like a bold o- statement of overreach, right? Hey, our beliefs are best because we have Jesus's beliefs. <laughs> That's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn so that we get closer to that. Um, everybody's familiar with the power of a healthy mindset? Yeah, that what we believe in our heads and get set down deep in our hearts is a mindset, and it has power to shape our lives. It also has the power to shape uh, events in other people's lives. So it's kind of a big deal. And then if we add God to that, we bring God into it and make it about our spiritual mindset or our spiritual beliefs, the stakes get even higher. And the mindset has the power for transformation. It also has some power to do dangerous or damaging things to ourselves or to other people. Uh, So we are exploring Jesus' beliefs. That's why we're doing it. Today's topic is that of God's love. And our task is to understand how Jesus understood God's love and then to adjust our faith, our spiritual mindset, and our actions if need be. And I want to begin with a true story from my spiritual leadership life. It was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when my phone rang, and it was the senior pastor saying, Katie, I think we have a problem. And I said, well, yeah, I have a lot of problems. Which one would you like to talk about today? And he said, no, it's a new one, and I think it's kind of a big deal. 
The pastor had received a call from a church member who was really shaken up. She was upset. She had been asked to step down from her volunteer role on our disability inclusion team, which back in that day we called special needs ministry. And this volunteer who was asked to step down was a special ed teacher in our school district. She had a role at the church that she very much treasured, this volunteer role, using her talents. And our staff and pastors, our, our whole team, the parents, loved her because she was an expert in the field um, that then was called special education. And she was a follower of Jesus, and she was fantastic with kids. So I know what you're thinking. What happened? Well... What happened is that a church staffer, a ministry director, told the woman that it had come to someone's on the attention, attention that she is a lesbian. And he explained to her that according to the beliefs that the Bible teaches, that disqualified her from the kind of spiritual leadership that she was doing on that team. And that she was welcome to keep coming and setting up for events or taking down, but not to be present with children and not to teach or lead the kids. Now to some of us in the room, most of us in the room, that it's cringy. We, we just sort of cringe. Um, when I heard that, Across the phone line, I just got a, a punch right here in the stomach, and I, I started shaking immediately, you know, a, vis a visceral response to what she must be feeling like, um, and it seemed shocking. But upon reflection and in, in truth, it re reflects a common misunderstanding or mindset among many, many church leaders and people, and that's that God's love, this is the misunderstanding, that God's love and acceptance of our whole self has limits. And it's on us to adjust our beliefs, our self-understanding, our lifestyle, if we want full acceptance, inclusion, privileges in God's family. And the hard truth is that many people in the world live with the assumption, the working assumption, that God's love is conditional and that our behavioral choices will determine the treatment that we draw back upon ourselves and that we can expect from God and we can expect from God's family. And that's a problem. That's the issue. And it's a problem that has roots. And those roots go far deeper and far wider than three or four misunderstood and misapplied Bible verses the problem's rooted in the way the world itself works. And everybody in the world has been schooled in this, not just conservative Bible school attenders. Everybody in the world is schooled in this. That's the issue. Not long after we're born, we discover that we live in a world of performance-based acceptance. It's the world. Our parents start shaping this in us and molding us at an early age. Some of the first words we hear are good and bad. Good, bad. We have this little grandson who's 15 months old now. His name is David. I call him baby David. His great-grandma calls him the Christ child. And she's totally serious. When baby David eats his food... We say, good boy, good boy, what a good boy. I don't think anyone in our family would call the Christ child bad. 
like bad boy, when you don't eat your food. We wouldn't do that. But one day I woke up that we were using this performance-based language right in front of him all the time. We have this kitty cat that we have been fostering for a long time, and I don't know if it's ever going to leave. And one time it bit the grandma who knows the baby is the Christ child. It's a true story. Bad kitty bit grandma. She had to get IV antibiotics. Anyway, when he wants to go up to bad kitty, we go, no, don't touch that kitty. That's the bad kitty. We have another kitty. That's the good kitty. That's the kitty you can touch. And then one day I went, no, no, everybody. We're going to call this naughty kitty wild kitty. (laughs) Because it's not, you know, it's not so much about these polar opposites of good and bad. I mean, that's really silly, right? You're all thinking she's a bad Grammy that she keeps that kitty around. We don't know what we're going to do with bad kitty when... David gets bigger. Well, we got to figure that out. But as a parent, a teacher, a coach, a grandparent, it's almost impossible not to sew into the narrative, not to pass it on. I mean, no matter how hard we try, it comes out. The performance-based acceptance, it starts in our families. If we're lucky, it gets worse when we move out into the world. You know what I mean by that? If it's worse in the family home, that is, that's a kiss of death right there. But usually... And, and, and God willing and God's mercy. It's worse out in the world. The whole world teaches it very well. If you score, you are praised. If you sing well, you get applauded. If you take, if you take the geometry test without understanding all the theorems and formulas that you need to know, you will fail the test. On the other hand, if you're good at math and you have mastery over these things, you, you will pass the test. You'll get a good grade. And if you get enough good grades, you might be able to to get a scholarship to go to college. That's a reward. And you do well in college, you could earn a degree. Hear the language here? You're going to earn it. And then you might get accepted. There's that acceptance word. Into graduate school. It's the way the system works. It's performance-based acceptance. It's almost all that we know. And because of it so much a part of our lifestyle and our mindset, our beliefs, if you will, we then project our worldly understanding onto God. Our worldly understanding of God's love and acceptance, we project it onto God. Sounds crazy. It is crazy. I am crazy. See, after all, I do know. If, I, if I'm crazy enough to believe in God which I do with my full crazy self, I believe in God. I have a relationship with this God. Therefore, I know that this God is wiser than my parents and my my coaches, my teachers, my boss. And on top of it all, God has insider information on my cruddy little heart. Everything that I hide from all those other people This God knows all those things. So why wouldn't I be motivated to improve myself and to get God's approval and acceptance and hope for a rewarding life? And as you might expect, this is exactly where religious-based performance comes into the picture. If I ask the average person what they want to do to improve their relationship or their experience of God, they are going to say that they say the same things over and over again. The formula is more and higher quality time spent in scripture, um, commitment to the church and to God's family through giving and serving and those kinds of things. 
And, you know, of course, prayer. Never talk to anybody who's happy with their prayer life. We all feel like we fall short in that area. We'd like to improve. My, my life with God will get better if I get better at prayer. And uh, sinning less. Call it character flaws. Call it your wounds, whatever. It's part of one of life's projects if you want to please God. We're all drawn into it. It's a belief system. It's called legalism. Another way of thinking of legalism is it's a superstition of sorts. It's not unlike avoiding black cats or ladders or broken mirrors. And we're drawn into legalism because it gives us a sense of control in a dangerous world of unknowns. And what could be more dangerous than (laughs) the mystery of God or more unknown? What could be? And it does not matter how progressive of a church you go to, how enlightened your understanding is. It does not matter. You could be the most enlightened Buddhist on the planet. You've been schooled in religious performance orientation. And this universal legalistic view of God's acceptance is a cosmic misunderstanding. Tragic, we could add to that word cosmic. It produces pain and problems in here, and they tend to get passed on and on and on. That ministry director in my story is a victim of the misunderstanding. He was carefully taught by his parents and Bible school teachers and Sunday school teachers and friends. He was carefully taught that God's acceptance of LGBTQ persons has limits. He was convinced that in enforcing those limits in the house of the Lord, he was obeying God. He was pleasing God. He was bringing glory to God. That is something he believes with all his heart. And we have to be carefully taught to view God this way. It doesn't happen by accident. It's embedded in the system for sure. It's not an accident. Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, have a lyric in a famous Broadway musical. I think it's South Pacific. The scene is about undoing racism or waking up to racism, overcoming it. In the lyric, the singer says, you have to be taught to hate and fear. You have to be taught year after year. It has to be drummed in your dear little ear. You have to be carefully taught. We have to be taught. Thank God. Thank God for the parents and the teachers and the mentors and the models who carefully taught us how to love. Thank God. We have these experiences, both good and bad, with love. And they've left us with numerous ways of understanding and defining love. We can hardly keep track of what we think it means. There's trauma from people who misunderstand love. We've been damaged by those misunderstandings. So given all this variety and the stakes of the question, what did Jesus believe about God's love and the character of God and the character of love is such an important question to explore. And as we do every single talk here at Crossroads, someone's going to open up the scriptures and give us a Bible lesson. So Ryan's going to take a few minutes to take us into a couple of different spots in scripture where Jesus makes this really clear. And then after that, I'll come back and we'll talk about how we can apply this wisdom in our everyday peacemaking lives.
Hey, thanks, Katie. It is great to be together with everybody via video, even though uh, we're away this weekend. Thanks so much for connecting and being a part uh, of this time together. So what a great question. What did Jesus teach about the character of God's love? Well, first of all, Jesus taught that God's love was universal, was universal, that it was experienced by everyone, whether we recognize it or not. Uh, I mentioned this passage last week where Jesus teaches on love in Matthew chapter 5, and it can be kind of tricky and misunderstood because of the way it ends, but we'll get to that later. But Jesus, when he teaches on love, he says, you've heard it said that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He goes on and says, if you love only those who love you, what recompense will you have? What good is that? How does that actually benefit you? He says, don't the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, What's unusual about that? Don't the pagans do the same? In other words, don't non-Jewish people do that? People that don't fully understand God like we do? Like, they do the same thing. How's that any benefit to you? And what Jesus is driving home, I think, in this teaching is that it's our tendency to think about God's love as reserved for people that look like us, people that worship like us, people that think like us, people that do good like us. We tend to think of God's love for our group. Remember that second uh, dome that we talked about a few weeks ago, right? That's the way we think about God's love. But Jesus comes along, this representation, the fullness of God, and he talks about love very differently. He talks about love in these natural terms, like rain, rain that falls on everybody, like rain's indiscriminate. If you stand in the rain, you're going to get wet. You can't stop it. You can avoid it. I suppose you can not go outside. But if we're all standing outside, it starts raining. The rain falls on the object regardless of the object. Regardless of whether the object is willing to admit it or not, there still is rain falling on a person. And that's the way God's love is. So this universal love that everyone experiences but not everyone acknowledges what does that universal love do in our lives? Like, what, what did Jesus teach about it? What did it look like? How did it affect us, right? Well, I think that Jesus taught that God's love, this universal love, it understands our choices perfectly. Now, this is huge for understanding, I think, a biblical concept, that the biblical concept of God and love that's trying to press through the normalcy of our world. So in, in Scripture, we have all these beautiful moments throughout the whole Bible where we see this love that is, is, is so, it's just strange. We can't understand it. But, but this is the love that is universal, that's perfect, that we don't quite get. We mess it up. But it's a love that understands our choices perfectly. I think where we see this is in this wonderful story that maybe you've heard of is called the prodigal son. I'd like to call it the understanding father. In Luke chapter 15, we get this story about a son who tells his dad, hey, I want my inheritance right now. He goes off, he spends everything. He finds himself uh, after partying and after using all of his resources. He's in a pig pen. He doesn't know what to do with his life. And he has this thought, I'll go back to my dad. I'll tell him that I don't deserve to be a son. Can I just be his, a servant? And then I'll have a job and some food, and maybe things will go better, right? 
And in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus tells this parable, the son arrives, the father sees him from a distance, runs out after him, the, the son falls down on the ground and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And he goes and he continues and he throws this party. And I love this because the father never acknowledges, never says to the son, oh, I forgive you. He never says to him, that's right, you were wrong, right? He just understood. Like the father understood what was going on in the son's life. He had to go try some things out, whatever it might be. And, and Jesus knew that when you understand someone or something perfectly, love flourishes in the form of grace. If you're a parent, you know this, that, that your child might be misbehaving, right? Might be doing something that you don't appreciate. But when you understand why they're doing it, you understand what's going on in their heart and their life, right? Love just flows out of you. Grace flows out of you. And this idea of forgiveness, this perfect forgiveness, it really isn't necessary from the father's perspective. It's only necessary in the son's perspective. So think about this, like repentance coming forward, that, that's necessary as a motion from the, the, the son, right? But the father doesn't need it. The father pulls him in tight. Peter Rollins, in his book, The Orthodox Heretic, tells a parable, a story of two friends named Samuel and Luca. And these two boys, they grew up together as little kids, uh, all throughout adolescence. They went to, they grew up, became adults, and they actually served in the war together. And that's where they became really, really close. That type of, that type of experience will bond you. And, and as they came out of the war and they came back home, they both fell in love with the same woman. And as it turns out, this woman, Lucy, she married Luca. And as time went on, their friendship existed, but all of a sudden, Samuel's parents died tragically. And in their death, Samuel inherited their estate. He became very wealthy. But in his grief, he was lost. In his grief, he was experiencing tremendous amount of pain. And in that pain, he turned to the person who he had developed an incredible bond with in all those years, and that was Lucy, Luca's wife. He had never really been able to let go of his love of her. And as they kind of leaned into one another as he shared his life. You can imagine what happened. They ended up having an affair, and it was very short, and Samuel was torn up about it, and he, he ended the affair, and he went to his friend Luca, and he told them what happened, and Luca responded, as you would imagine. He said, I swear by God in heaven, by all that is right and divine, I will never accept your apology. I will never accept an apology from you. And Samuel went away sad, and Years went by, and they kind of separated, and every day Samuel felt the pain of this, this action. And after, after years of being estranged from his friend, he finally decided, you know, I need, to, I need to go, and I need to repent. I need to say, I'm sorry. I need to apologize. I need to bring a repentant heart to my friend. And I know my friend, he will never accept it. He said he'll never accept it, and I know he won't. But he says, I have to do this. And so one day he went back to his friend, Luca, and he he came before him, and he humbled himself, and he, he said, I am so sorry for what I did. I know it was wrong. I should have never done it. And he said, and I know that you have vowed that you'll never accept my apology. You'll never accept my repentance, but it's important that I come and that I tell you again that I was wrong and how sorry I am. And in that moment, Luca kind of smiled at his friend, and, and he had softened. 
Because over the years, Luca had realized that those were kind of dark days for everybody. That Samuel had been in a deep depression, that there were other things going on, and he began to understand what was happening. And so he looked at his friend and he said, you know what? I don't accept your apology. Because if I were to accept your apology, then that would mean that I am accepting that you intentionally tried to harm me and hurt me, and I know that's not the case. And for us to truly be reconciled, I'm going to hold to my vow that I will never accept an apology from you because it's not necessary. So it's a powerful little parable that, that shows that when, when we come with our hearts open, when we come recognizing, understanding what's going on in people's lives, forgiveness and reconciliation can flow, and that's how God functions with us. Do we need to bring repentance? Absolutely. Do we have to do that for our sake? Yes. But from the perspective of God, that relationship that relationship, God understands what we're going on. God's love understands the choices that we've made, why we made those choices. God understands the choices that were put upon us, things that have happened to us that have affected our lives and just receives us. And what a beautiful image that Jesus tells us about this universal love that it understands. And the third thing that we see, I think, in Jesus is that Jesus taught that God's love transforms shame into great love. That, that, that God's love takes our shame, this universal love that understands us, takes the shame that we would experience and transforms it into love for others. There's this beautiful story in Luke chapter 7 where a woman comes and anoints Jesus. Jesus is at a dinner party with some, uh, some, some religious leaders, and, and they freak out about this, and they say, why would Jesus let this woman come? Doesn't he know what kind of reputation she has, the things that she's done? And so Jesus talks to this, this you know, religious leader about his heart and, and about forgiveness and who do you think loves and, and, and isn't it the person who's been forgiven much that, that, that would love much? And he gives a little parable about a man who's been forgiven a whole bunch of money versus a man who's been forgiven just a little bit of money. And he says, well, who do you think is more grateful? Who do you think appreciates it more? And he says, well, the man who's been forgiven all kinds of money. And so Jesus then looks at him and says, so here's the thing, I tell you that this woman... Her many sins have been forgiven, and that's why she has sown such great love. That's why she has poured out this expensive jar of perfume. That's why she's anointed me. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. You see, understanding replaces judgment and removes fear from our relationship with God. When we know that the God of the universe, the one who creates us, the one who is sustaining all life is the very essence of love. And that love understands and doesn't judge us, but loves us, embraces us, brings us care and grace. It removes fear. And so Jesus knew that the fruit of a life that has experienced that love, that understands God as love, that understands this love that is universal, the fruit of that life is gratitude. Jesus understood that guilt will bury us in shame and it will send us hiding in the garden. You see, we're always somewhere in the cycle of eating that forbidden fruit of Eden, feeling the shame of it, and then putting on the clothes sewn by God. That's the beauty of that story. That beauty of that story is a picture of us, that we're always somewhere in that space of our behavior harming ourselves or harming others, feeling a sense of shame, a sense of guilt, being overburdened, and then encountering a God who loves us, encountering a God who sews clothes to remove our shame. So here's what I don't want us to miss as we kind of navigate what Jesus believed about God's love, is that Jesus believed God's love is perfect love, and that we are perfected by that love. 
right? So this love that is universal, this love that understands, this love that transforms shame is perfect love, and it perfects us when we demonstrate it. That's why Jesus finished his teaching in Matthew 5, 48 about love with this statement. So be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sometimes this passage, this statement of Jesus gets used to tell people they have to be morally perfect, get rid of all the sins in your life, because that's how your father's perfect. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus believed that the only way to live a whole or a mature life was to immerse ourselves in the perfect love of God. God loves perfectly. That's what the call is, constantly striving to live in that perfect love, constantly striving to exhibit that perfect love. See, only when we understand how perfect love works, that it's universal, that it understands, only when we understand, only when we see that it can transform our shame, right? only when we see that can we deploy it in our lives, can we live it out and then hope to overcome the power of sin in our world, right? That wound and wounding nature of life, what the Bible calls sin. The only way we overcome it, the only way we move past it, the only way we live in reconciliation is to understand God's love, to understand perfect love and let it flow into our lives and flow out of our lives. So this call to be perfect is not a call to moral perfection where we beat ourselves up for making mistakes. It's, it's not an impossible standard that points to our need for Jesus to be punished on our behalf. No, this, this, this call to moral perfection is perfect love. And it's the pathway to peace. This is the pathway to peace. Love everyone always. Forgive everyone always. That's what Jesus taught. It's challenging, but that's what Jesus believed about God's love, and that when we live it out, we're perfected, right? When we live it out, we're perfected, and God's love is perfecting us and our world. So as always, the big question when we look at this wisdom from Scripture or as we think about what Jesus believed is to ask, what do we do with it in our normal lives, right? If we have a spirituality that's grounded in peacemaking, if the peacemakers are called children of God, how do we actualize this wisdom to make the world a better place. Do me a favor, welcome Pastor Katie back up as she walks through some practical ways that we can live this wisdom out in our everyday normal peacemaking lives. Okay, that's some pretty good grown-up big kids Sunday school, isn't it? <laughs> that's good big kids Sunday school. I only agreed, disagreed with a couple of things that the teacher said, you know, no, it was really a great lesson, puts a lot of this in perspective. And now I have for us two easy steps for how to be perfect like God. <laughs> but that, that statement's already been reframed for us. And I hope you carry the reframe with you for the rest of your life. It's really two easy steps, how to be perfected by God's love. So total difference, right? How to be perfected by God's love. We put that in the talk notes there so that you can keep that perspective. First easy step is to develop an awareness. Develop an awareness of the beliefs and the habits of performance orientation. Performance orientation is the opposite of being perfected in God's love. It is actually trying to be perfect like God or like somebody that you idolize. 
The, it's the opposite. Performance orientation is the opposite of being perfected by God's love. It's being caught up in something you do not want to be caught up in. I had a Sunday school teacher one time who was like trying to explain what the devil does to us. I don't know if I didn't agree with everything the person said, but I like this illustration. Take a piece of paper, have just a little corner of it, of your life. Devil has just a little corner of your life. What happens to your life? That kind of thing, right? So performance orientation does that to our whole life. It gets a little corner of our life, but it's a very powerful corner. In this state, you're overly influenced by objects outside of your spirit, out there. Situations, people, things, imaginary opinions about what God thinks of everything. In performance orientation, we're constantly seeking approval and control, and we choose our actions, anticipating the response that we'll get from the audience, if you will. It's a fear-based reactionary way to live. When you're in performing for acceptance, your internal reference point is your ego. It's a, your false self. It's the person you've constructed and you're trying to be. It, it, it's, it's, it's your self-image. It's a social mask. It's a role that you're playing. And keeping a careful eye all the time while we're doing this on our audience. So we're just not even, you know that whole thing about, you know you can tell when you're not present with yourself or someone else isn't because we're thinking in this response-oriented kind of a way. It's an uncomfortable place to be. The trick is to just learn to self-observe and catch yourself doing it. I know, I said it. I said it, it starts with just something very easy. Catch yourself performing. Now, I'm going to take this one step further. Have a laugh about it. Laugh at yourself. Oh, my gosh, look what I just caught myself doing. That's so silly. I'm going to take it one step further. Imagine, to speak to Jesus, imagine Jesus is with you laughing about this. You're together in this. Now, am I blaming all this on the spirit of Christ? No, I'm not. But I'm, I'm thinking about how Jesus says, be yoked with me and we'll carry the burdens of life together. Like imagine yourself on a journey with Christ and with God. There's no separation at all. Therefore, when I go into my crazy making self, I'm dragging Jesus right along into it. And I have a companion there. I am not totally alone. It's like a non-judgmental friend that I can say, oh my gosh, look what I just did. Look what I just wrote. Look what I just said. Look how I'm feeling right now, that stomach ache I have, because I'm wondering if I'm going to get the right response. God understands, like Ryan talked about. And the trick is to self-observe, self-observe. Second trick is to create a new life. Oh, that's going to be easy, isn't it? We're going to replace being whipped all over the place with the paper with this new life of love orientation. A love orientation is having a spirit and a soul that is free from the show-must-go-on trap of performance-based orientation. In this state, you are perfect because you are you. <laughs> and that's the short and simple truth of it. it. might take some mental gymnastics to come to believe that. That's your task in this life. You are perfect because you're you. Your soul is free from the worldly show, which you know because you are immune to criticism. 
and unfearful of challenges and problems. And you don't feel beneath other people that you meet on the journey. And you don't feel superior to other people that you meet on the journey. You're just in this balanced, centered middle, which is what true humility is. And we ask, how can that ever be true of me? And this is how. With your soul free, with your soul free and in God's perfect love ruling in your heart instead of this reactionary mentality, you know that you are connected and accepted. Your internal reference point is Christ's love connecting all things. That's your internal reference point. I'm part of something. You know you're connected and accepted, and you're aware that everyone else you meet is caught up in that same spirit of love from God. They're all accepted and connected as well. You're not alone in your shame bubble. They're not alone in their shame bubble. You are all part of the great love, capital G, capital L, great love that contains and sustains the whole world. You're part of it. Talk about I want to be in the room where it happens. That's the room right there, caught up in the great love. And when you're rooted and grounded in love, you get to know your true nature. You get used to God's natural love animating and energizing your actions and what you think and everything that you do. So start watching yourself and give it a good laugh. Give it a good laugh when you are in that performance orientation and engage in some soul training some good healthy practices that open our hearts up to this love orientation. I think there are four essential practices. I've tried these myself. The models, good models and mentors in my life, I see this in their life, so I just kind of picked up on it. And they're listed there in your talk notes so that you don't even have to write them all down. The essential practices are silence, meditation, non-judgment, and time spent in nature. It's what they are. That will change your life. In silence, we have disciplined ourselves each and every day to turn off the noise, to shut out the show. Don't let anybody know where your goat is tied during the silence thing. Nobody pushing your buttons and triggering your competitive spirit and making you feel bad about yourself because you're in silence. Nobody can get your ego to converse with them because it's not available. You're in silence. Meditation is another daily practice. It rewires our brains because, you know, we, we know this worldly way of being. So we want to rewire and reteach. There's some great apps for your, your smartphone for meditation, or maybe you have a practice or a book or something like that. Don't discount its power in your life because it will change how you're thinking. It will literally physiologically change you. And then non-judgment is our daily commitment to stop evaluating everything as good and bad and right and wrong. And I know there's loopholes in this. You may have a job where you have to evaluate things. I, I get all of that. If the first thing you think of are all the loopholes, you might want to work on this one. Put the loopholes over here on this table and make a commitment every day to live out of a place, an orientation of non-judgment. Let them be wrong. Who cares? Because we're centered in Christ. And then it's a different vantage point from which we live the day. And then time spent in nature, 
I don't have to preach that to you. (laughs) You know you feel better and your ego kind of goes away and you feel more your natural self when you're out doing what you enjoy in nature. So learn those essential practices. Know who your models and your mirrors and your mentors are. You want to know who these people are in your life. Who do you see who's living this kind of generous, confident life? You want to know the people who are that way so that when they reflect something about you back to you, it's not a judgmental or competitive thing. It's a loving, true mirror. You know those people who can help you with that? And, and then our, um, our mentors, they teach you. You want to know who they are and limit your time with people who are not that way. We're not going to cast them away because we're all caught up in the same great love. And we don't have to shame those people, but we want to be very smart about how much influence we give them in our lives and find more of these love orientation people. And then I have to say, if you're dealing with any kind of self-destructive habits in your life, um, self-hatred thoughts, anxiety and depression, Resentment toward other people from pain and wounds that you have a hard time just not thinking about it all the time. Get skilled help. Make it a, make it a part of your life project to get therapeutic help and, and, and support from this universe that God has made for you in love. Get help. Find support. Most people need this. I mean, we're, we're in a tough world. The world is wired up this way. If we want to be different and we want to be peacemakers, we might need some skilled help. And then this will make us better human beings. It really will. And what does that look like? It's so simple. Your true self comes alive. You're happy, free, humble, and powerful. All your power that was based on your performance, it's temporary, You only have it as long as the object of your orientation is there to give you that feedback. The title or the money or being in the room where it happens and having your ideas taken seriously. When that goes away, then you don't take yourself seriously if that's what it's based on. On the other hand, God's perfecting love is invincible. It's everlasting. And in you, this love is your character. That's your character test. And it will draw people to you. You will get the love that you're seeking, even in the human realm, because it's your character. And people are drawn to you. It energizes our families. It energizes our work teams. It even energizes our body, our physical bodies, for health and healing and well-being. It puts you in touch with your true desires, and it immerses you in a sense of God's favor. That's the grace of God. Grace is the unexpected favor of God. That's what grace is. It immerses you there. Imagine the feeling of being constantly favored and supported by God and others. Takes all the triggers away, but more importantly, that's perfection. That constant sense that you are supported and buoyed up by love and you're okay and you're enough and all that stuff. That's the perfection Ryan was speaking of and that's the life Jesus knew completely and it's a way of life where you enjoy a bond with the spirit of Christ, with God, your parent or however you think of that and with others. And when we are this way, we're transformed. We're transformed by God's love. 
And then we become models and mirrors of God's love to the world. If you want to be a good evangelist and draw people to Christ without knocking on doors, (laughs) that's the way to do it. You just show up like those people who mirror and model love to you do. And then we also subvert something Ryan was speaking of, and that's the power of sin. We subvert the power of sin. We flip the script on wounds and wounding. We stop the cycle. We quit passing it on because we don't need to do that to be accepted. All the power that we need to make our lives in this world a better place is found in the love that Jesus understood about God. And I know that's a lot to think about. I know every talk in this series has been a lot to think about. So give yourself the freedom. Listen again. Meditate on those notes. Look up, look up those scriptures. And then be understanding of what God might be inviting you into today. It's probably something that hooked you in your heart. Maybe it's to learn to gently observe yourself when you're in performance orientation. <laughs> gently observe. Have a laugh. Take that up as a habit of your life. And maybe it's to commit to some of those spiritual practices, creating that new life of love orientation. Well, as we always do, we want to give ourselves some time to breathe in this service. The band's going to lead us in another song. I invite you to uh, listen along or sing along. And I'll come back and the service with with our blessing. So if you'd like, stand with us and the band will lead us. Wow, that's really good. Okay. I need my notes for this blessing. It's from Ephesians chapter 3. I almost couldn't find it. It's the paper I that the devil jerked around a minute ago. The blessing. Here it is, okay? So receive this from Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes, I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, God would strengthen you in your inner being with power through the Spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I forgot to remind you to raise your arms if you feel like doing that. I pray that you will have power to understand, along with all creation, what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's perfecting love. And may you know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. And now to the God of our lives, who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine to this God be glory in the lives of ordinary peacemakers everywhere and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope that that fills you up. I hope you live the rest of your week very filled up. Please do um, sign up to help with that Oktoberfest. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next time. Our closing song for the week is Goodness of God. It's a favorite around here, and I'm linking it in the show notes. Grab the link. 
take it with you this week and be encouraged. And we are deep into preparations for Oktoberfest. And we want every person who calls Crossroads home to be involved in making this event a reality. Whether you're here in Northern Colorado or part of our global network of peacemakers, you can volunteer your time on a team. You can donate candy. You could donate money toward costumes or join as a community partner. We especially need creative people who are willing to go all out and host themed booths. These booths can involve candy and games or be simple. You can go as simple or as fancy as you want. Visit crossroadscolorado.com slash Oktoberfest for all of the details. And finally, thank you to everyone for regular giving to support the work of our church. Our giving goes toward making events like this Oktoberfest possible. We also know that regular practice of financial generosity is an important part of our own spiritual health. So we always make generosity simple and convenient. These links are in the show notes. But if you'd like to give by mobile app, you can text the word CROSSROADS to 833-270-1344. You can also find us on Venmo. Look for the little orange dot of hope. Little orange dot. Also keep your eyes on this gather page. The links in the show notes all come from crossroadscolorado.com slash gather. And the feed e-newsletter will keep you up to date on all things happening this fall. If you're not receiving all of these things, then you'll want to click on the connect card and give us as much information as you feel comfortable with. Ask to start receiving the feed e-newsletter and weekly email. Well, I hope you have a great week and thank you so much for being an inclusive and generous part of the Crossroads Network of Peacemakers. Have a great week.